Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Am I Called podcast. I'm your host, Dave Harvey. Thabiti Anyabwile is today's guest, and I got to tell you, I'm really excited that he agreed to join us. Thabiti is the assistant pastor for church planting at Capitol Hill Baptist right now, having recently, and some might suggest astoundingly, relocated back to our nation's capital from a pastorate that he occupied in the Cayman Islands. Thabiti loves being a pastor, but he's also known as a, a cogent author, a preacher, a, a thinker on issues of justice, and particularly on the topic of race. Thabiti, thanks for joining us. Dave, it's a joy to be with you, brother. Thank you for having me. Well, let's dispense with the most curious piece of that bio, Thabiti. Um, why would anyone move back from the Grand Cayman to the East Coast? Uh, is, that, is that like temporary insanity? I mean, what gives there? Uh, well, you know, I guess it could be classified as that, but uh, at the very most basic sense uh, was a compelling sense of call um, that the Lord was uh, moving us back to the States, back to uh, an underserved neighborhood, uh, and uh, to join existing ministries there and uh, evangelizing the community. And that was something that I worked to discern together with my elders in, in Cayman, and it seemed good to us and seemed good to the Spirit that um, we would heed the Lord's call in this way. You know, let's just drop into that for a second, because that's a fairly significant development, and, that, and yet it's one that often happens, I think, among some of the guys that might listen to the podcast, where maybe they're serving in, a, in an existing role and feeling a sense that God might be leading them to something else. And maybe, Thabiti, you could just talk a little bit more about how you engaged God and how you engaged your church in the process of discerning a call to, to come back to the States. That's a great question and, and a vital issue, as you, as you point out. Um, I think Probably the best place to start would be to say that when I went to the Cayman Islands, um, two things were established that seemed to me to be really healthy. Uh, one is was that the elders here at Capitol Hill Baptist Church were in prayerful conversations with the elders there at First Baptist Church. And uh, so my movement there um, very much had the prayerful blessing and engagement of the elders of both congregations, as opposed to kind of stealing away in the night and um, something of that sort. And so when I got there, one of the things that I had always committed to the elders was that if there were ever a time that I thought I, I might be interested to do something different or began to wonder about my call there or um, future there at the church, the elders at that church would be the first to know and that we would pray and talk um, about that in the same spirit in which the elders at Capitol Hill had prayed and talked with the elders at First Baptist um, as a part of discerning the Lord's will. So after being there for about um, almost six years, I suppose, uh, my wife and I had a relationship retreat. We were at a hotel there on the island for a couple of days, sort of putting our lives on the on the whiteboard, as it were, thinking about the scope of family and ministry and what the future should look like. And uh, one one late night, um, as I'm sort of drifting off to sleep with one eye open and she's still talking, uh, she she sort of noticed that I was I was beginning to fade. And she says, "I have I have one last question for you." 
And I said, what's that? She says, um, if you never served in a predominantly African-American church or community or somewhere close to that context and finished your life in ministry, would you regret it? And I sat mm. straight up in the bed, wide awake, um, because I knew that, yeah, I think there would be a part of me that in some earthly way would regret it. I'd be happy if the Lord left me in the Cayman Islands. I wouldn't think that I was um, being disobedient or some such thing, but that question just had resonance with me. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I knew I then needed to begin talking with my elders uh, because it had gone from an idle thought to something that I was really kind of thinking about. And so that began a, about a year-long process with my elders of just reviewing life and ministry there in Cayman, thinking about um, sort of the, the sort of dream the Lord was beginning to give me about the possibility of leaving and, and um, establishing a church plant and praying with the brothers about what if that was good, what, what did they detect in my motives that maybe weren't pure, um, and how should I be thinking about these issues. And uh, long story short, at the end of it, the elders came back and said, Brother, we, we cannot detect a, a sinful motive in what you're thinking. We, we think that it's, it's good. You're advancing the, the gospel and the kingdom. And we are supportive. We'd love for you to stay, but uh, we're also supportive if, um, you know, at the, the, the end of the day, you feel like the Lord would have you go. And uh, so then we, we began to transition and communicate with the congregation about that. And so it was very much that, that twofold sense of internal call and desire, a growing burden for the community that we've come to serve, and also the external affirmation and um, counsel and guidance uh, of my elders there in the church. And that was really important to me um, in thinking about leaving that ministry. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate about <clears throat> your your story is just how your ecclesiology informed your your sense of calling and uh you know it, a, a calling isn't just a man's calling it's a it's it's something that he shepherds and and nurtures and and examines through the context of the local church and the elders in particular and and it, it's it's interesting in hearing you talk how many times you used the term elders or how how vital what a vital part of the process they were as as you were walking through that no, amen. It, 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 I don't feel like I could have done that um, in a healthy way apart from the elders. Um, and in fact, I feel like if I had sort of made a decision unilaterally, sort of announced it as a fait accompli, uh, and been gone in a couple of weeks, I would have left behind some ghosts and some hurt feelings and um, I would have left a reeling church. Uh, and a reeling eldership. And that seems to me not to be the loving way uh, to make transitions when the Lord calls, it, calls us to do so. Um, and so it was important for me because also the church had been uh, had experienced that uh, in a previous pastorate. It was important for me not to replicate that and um, to, to submit myself to the elders um, for the safekeeping of my own soul. And um, I, I feel like the Lord blessed it. That's great. Now, Thabiti, you know, one of the things I want to do is I want to take some time in our conversation and talk about issues of race and and justice. But before we go there, one of the things that I think is helpful to our listeners is to just to just hear the story of how our guests 
experience their call to preach the gospel. So, you know, I, I know that your call, that your your conversion story is is multi-layered and, and complicated. But maybe you could you could narrow that down to your experience of of feeling like God was calling you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and talk about that segment of it. Yeah, that's a great question, brother. Um, I, other people began to sense or to notice what they thought was gifting for uh, public ministry and leadership uh, before I did. Uh, I was sort of running around as a Christian, happy to lead small groups and to encourage others and to, to do the work of evangelism and uh, to serve in my local church, as even serving as a lay elder. Um, but did not have a sense that uh, pastoral ministry, full-time pastoral ministry, was was my future. And um, the thing that began to change that for me was, even though I had been very active in the local church, I I hadn't quite acquired um, an understanding of the centrality of the local church to the Christian life and the beauty of the local church. and so when I began to see that, the Lord began to show me that in the Scripture, and I began to experience that in a healthy church. Well, what went from, you know, kind of important but secondary, um, then began to be more and more important and central. And I began more and more to desire to give my life to that. Um, and so along the way, uh, I would get opportunities in God's providence to go somewhere and to preach um, and little ladies would come up to me after the service and say, sweetie, where are you in your call? And <laughs> I, not really even knowing how to talk about it, I would say, well, I, you know, I'm just trying to be faithful and serve the Lord. And, and um, the older saints in particular began to say, I, I think the Lord might have a call on your life to, to do this. And, and again, initially I just resisted it and um, began to sort of search the Scripture and think, think through it with the Bible open. What was the nature coming, of your resistance, the BD? Yeah, it was um, mainly that I didn't want to be associated with uh, a lot of the unhealthiness I saw in pastors on television or in some of the local churches I knew in my hometown. Um, I... I I held the view that that many unbelievers hold, and and even some Christians hold, that that pastors were these folks who only worked on Sunday and um, were paid exorbitant uh, amounts for little to no benefit. I I just did not have a high view of the pastorate. Uh, Even though I loved my particular pastor and thought of him as an exception, um, I, I did not yet see this as a noble calling. And uh, and so I was I was therefore resistant, and I certainly didn't want to be associated with prosperity preachers and and guys on television who seemed to me to be kind of um, making merchandise of the church. And um, and so I, I was resistant for that reason. Uh, again, until the Lord began to sort of speak through me through these little comments and then through His Scripture. And uh, I remember being sort of holed up for a, a couple of weeks in the Scripture, just searching the Scripture, trying to think through calling and the office of, of, of the pastor and elder, and uh, being wrestled to the ground, really, uh, by the Lord, and then facing insecurities. Like, okay, how, how is it that I go from not viewing this as a noble calling to now desiring this? Didn't my first view kind of make me unworthy of the office now? 
And I remember coming out of my study. I had a home study at the time. I came out of my study, and my wife was coming down the stairs. I met her at the bottom of the stairs, and I said, I have something to tell you. And she sat out and was putting on her running shoes, about ready to go for a run. And I said, um, I think the Lord is calling me to ministry. Hmm. And she kind of giggled and started laughing. And and so now I'm really insecure. I'm really like, okay, maybe maybe I did miss this. And, you know, uh, my wife is always honest with me. Is going to tell me the honest truth here. And I said, but she knew. Yeah, I said kind of timidly, why why are you laughing? And she says, everybody knows that, but you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the last one to figure that out. Uh, at which point, you know, I began to sort of move forward. Uh, in pursuit of the ministry. Now, in the men that you've worked with, Sabidi, do you find that that's common, that that often other people are aware first and the man actually becomes one of the last to, to know? I do think that's common, and, and a case could be made that where that's not the case, there might be something a little bit amiss. So if a, if a guy's involved in a church regularly and um, is serving in his church, and others don't notice that he seems to be, he seems to edify the church in areas of service. Um, if he's not on some level sort of sought after as a, as a teacher of God's Word or someone who can be trusted with God's Word, uh, and yet he feels a, a strong sense of calling, um, that, that's probably a, an indication to slow down a little bit and, um, and begin to figure some things out in terms of the external call. Um, and but but yeah, in my experience, lots of guys are are sort of the last to know. Others see it, others begin to sort of speak about it and encourage it um, before before the man himself begins to sort of see it and accept it. Thabiti, let's leave the uh, the discussion of of calling for for a little bit and and switch over to the topic of of race because. Right now, the city of Ferguson, Missouri, has kind of taken center stage in the media due to racial tensions, I mean, I mean, violence. And uh, why don't you help us to look at these events through your eyes? I mean, what does Ferguson represent to an African-American man, and, and why should the church care? Well, I think it's, it's going to depend on the African-American man that you're talking to, right? So there are going to be differences of opinion. Uh, I was walking yesterday uh, after lunch talking with another uh, African-American elder here at the church, and uh, we were talking about Ferguson. And uh, he works in a neighborhood, a pretty tough neighborhood with young people. Um, and, and his take was, you know, it's entirely believable to him that um, this young man or, or other young men in the community uh, would kind of buck against police authority. He's seen it. Um, his first impression was to be supportive of the officer or to assume um, the best of the officer and the things that have happened there, even though he's quick to say, I, I don't know what happened. Um, and, and he, you know, spoke rather eloquently of uh, some problems um, inside the community that are contributory to some of the tensions. Um, so that, so there are folks in that camp. And, and then there are folks who come to the, the particular incident of Ferguson thinking about the longer general history of police tension with the African-American community, in particular African-American men. Uh, and, and they see in Ferguson at least uh, a history that, that makes Ferguson possible. 
um, that, that creates the conditions for uh, mistrust, that creates the condition for tension. Um, they see in Ferguson a possible, uh, another possible incident confirming a pattern of um, police mistreatment. And, and one can understand that when you sort of look at um, just the month of August this year where five African-American men um, were, were killed um, in an encounter with police, um, half of them are more unarmed. Um, we think of Eric Garner and the choking death in New York and uh, then Michael Brown and Ferguson and a couple of others. And so that begins to be part of a, a, a narrative, for lack of a better word. That begins to be part of uh, a story that is repeated. Um, and so there is welling up in uh, communities and welling up in the hearts of some people, uh, not only mistrust, uh, but now fear and angst and anger and uh, a longing for um, better treatment, a longing for justice. Uh, and, and I think that's what you're seeing in the protest in Ferguson. Now, the protests, we wouldn't endorse everything about the protest or everyone out there protesting and everything that's happened under the name of the protest. But in terms of what seems to be at the heart of most people's actions there uh, is that kind of angst and anger and fear and fatigue and desire for justice. Uh, and that really is... Um, connected to a broader script of mistreatment. Let me, let me say this in, in terms of perspective. Um, this, this can be difficult to understand for persons outside the African-American community who, you know, who went to school like, like many of us and learned about officer-friendly and uh, who see the valor and the, and the heroism that our officers um, provide the community day in, day out. Uh, it's important to remember that, that our police officers, um, we, we ask them to work in a fallen world to do the most difficult work, uh, sometimes with, with not the best tooling, uh, resources and support or even numbers, um, to do that day in and day out. And, and I think there's something right, something profoundly right, about acknowledging that sacrifice and that reality. Now, having, having said that, I think it's also something profoundly important about recognizing that if you're African-American and you're sort of viewing the history of African-America, that really up until the last, say, 40 years, up until the sort of success of the civil rights movement and the changing, the beginning of the gradual changing of some institutions, African-Americans lived in a police state. The, the police didn't necessarily serve and protect the African-American community. Um, they, they policed the African community. They surveilled the African-American community. It, it, was, it was uniformed officers who enforced Jim Crow segregation. You know, it's uniformed officers who enforced um, many of the things that, that we would black, white, Hispanic, we, we would all be repulsed by. So whereas a, a, a white person might see a policeman or a policewoman symbolizing protection, an African-American might immediately feel a sense of persecution because of some of that, that history? No, I, I think that's right, at least carrying uh, a mistrust. And, and sometimes that mistrust is just, it's passed down sometimes um, as a... As a 
not just as naked mistrust and suspicion. It can be that. But sometimes it's passed down parent to child as a survival lesson. You know, listen, if a police officer pulls you over, you you be as polite as you can, you comply as much as you can, um, and, and you do these things knowing that... Um, this could go sideways. Now, Thabiti, uh, that's a tough lesson to deliver. Yeah. Well, you're one of the things that I think people appreciate about you is that you're able to think circumspectly on these issues, and and yet, I guess my question to you is: Do you do you experience being pulled over by a police officer? in a way that has these instinctive reactions that would be different than what I might experience being pulled over by a police officer? Uh, probably. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a blog post the other day, a week or so ago, called The One Thing My Mother Would Not Allow Me to Be. And it was, it was just sort of telling a story about how, as a little boy, probably about my son's age, about seven years old, saying to my mom, uh, you know, as parents have those those conversations, what do you want to be when you grow up and encouraging their kids? And I'm trying on different ideas. And when one day I said, oh, I think I want to be a police officer. And her face, which is normally, you know, soft and supple with love and, and tenderness, um, grew stony and, and straight. And she said, you will not be a police officer because I will not have you locking up our people. And and so now she's older, sort of having grown through segregation and all that good stuff. Uh, that that was just not on the radar of possibilities for her son because of that history. And I fast forward to one one incident that I think is illustrative. I could give you a number, but I fast forward to my university days. Uh, I was a graduate student at a major research one institution. Uh, I had great relationships with faculty and staff. I had done both my undergraduate and graduate degrees there, uh, and so was well known to you know faculty and staff. We played basketball Monday, Wednesday, Fridays uh, at lunchtime for a couple of hours, and I would drive over to the gym. And one day, uh, parked at a meter, and uh, I'd been playing ball for about an hour. It's time to feed the meter. I go out to put coins in the meter, and police officers roll up on me in a squad car real hard, and they begin to ask me questions about my whereabouts. Now, I'm standing there sweating from basketball. I said, I've been in the gym for the last hour playing basketball. Um, if, if you like, you can walk into the gym, and they're, they're literally... 20 college professors who will vouch that, you know, I've been here and not only have I been here playing basketball, but we all came over from the office together. So the last five hours are accounted for. They refused to go into the gym with me. Instead, cuffed me, put me in the patrol car, drove me around the block to a dorm uh, where they pulled up outside the dorm doors where a young woman inside the dorm could see me, but I couldn't see her. She had apparently been um, accosted, uh, assaulted in some way, and they picked me up saying that I fit the description. I asked them what the description was. They said, tall black man. Hmm. Now, I'm sitting in the back of this squad car, honestly, brother, um, really wanting to weep um, in in both anger and and sadness because I, I feel like dignity has just been taken from me. And I feel like, Dave, I, I grew up in a generation where um, many black parents uh, cautioned their sons from ever being involved romantically with, with white, white girls or white women. Uh, because the, at the time, what, what was popularly thought was when that relationship came to light, 
it, it wasn't as permissible as it is now. When it came to light, um, that, that there had been too many cases where uh, a consensual relationship was later claimed to have been uh, a forced relationship. And so the charge of rape would stick and things of that sort. And, brother, I'm, just, I'm sitting in the back of that patrol car with all of that flashing through mm. my head, thinking if she says that's the guy, then, then I'm stuck like Chuck. My, my life is going to be radically different in a matter of moments. And never mind I've got 25, 30 guys who can vouch for me. Um, never mind that I've been an upstanding citizen on the campus and, you know, all that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm a tall black guy. Wow. And, and that's sufficient for me to be in the back of a police car handcuffed, being ID'd or, or in a lineup, so to speak. That is a uh, very vivid you know, illustration. Yeah. I mean, grievous, outrageous <laughs> illustration. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's not uncommon. It's not unusual. Um, I just read the news the other week, a couple of weeks ago, of a, a Hollywood producer. <laughs> Similar kind of thing. He's he's um, supposed to go to some red carpet event. Uh, maybe it was the the Golden Globe Awards or something. Uh, African American guy. Uh, he's at a restaurant. He goes out to feed his meter, and the cops are, uh, sort of approach him, handcuff him, make him sit on the sidewalk for an hour or so, uh, take him downtown, book him. He's he's in jail for like six hours um, because he quote fit the description of someone. Uh, who had done something somewhere in the area? Um, mm. They, you know, never mind that he could produce, you know, evidence of his whereabouts and who he was and so on and so forth. Um, and 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 released six seven hours later with with no apology or or anything of the sort. And and so you you some of us live with this sense that um, these encounters are fragile and dangerous and. Um, can, can be life-altering in a matter of moments. And it's, it, it's really important to the experience of fellowship between peoples and ethnic groups and races to understand this, to understand something of this history because it influences how one experiences fellowship. And I wanted to get you to comment on that, Thabiti. For instance, you know, if a white Christian approaches an African-American and, and says, hey, you know, race doesn't matter and, and kind of slaps the Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. Um, you know, how do you, how do you experience that? And, and, and how is that accurate? How is, how is Galatians 3 accurate and how is it inaccurate? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I mean, there, there are things that are right about the comment, right? So I, I'm personally of the, of the belief um, that, that the very idea of races um, is, is false, that there is no such thing as, as biologically distinct races, um, that when you read the, the Bible, uh, you're reading the story of one humanity descended from Adam. Uh, in that sense, we're all of Adam's race. Or the way Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17, God has made all the peoples of the earth uh, from, from one, one blood, from one parentage, right? Uh, in that sense, that's exactly right. And then it's, and then it's, it's in, a, in, a, in another way, um, we, we, we have to recognize that, that God has created humanity with the same kind of diversity in, in peoples and groups and languages and so on um, as he's created the rest of the creation. So in the same way, there are varieties of roses, but they're all roses, or there are varieties of, um, 
you know, particular kinds of birds, but they're all birds. Uh, they're varieties of, of, of human groups, but they're all one humanity. And that's not happenstance, because when you come to Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, that ethnicity, that, that, that variety and ethnicity and peoples, languages, and so on, God has intended that to redound to his glory for eternity. He's going to redeem from every tribe, language, and nation people for himself. And, and he has done that, and he's made them one new man in Christ. Now, in that sense, it, it doesn't matter. The overarching story of the Bible is that there's one fallen humanity from which God is calling out um, one redeemed humanity, one new man in Christ, to use the language of Ephesians 2. But that's not to obliterate the ethnic distinctions, the language, culture, experiences, and histories, which, which are meant to be um, to amplify his glory and eternity and are meant to enrich uh, the family of God. And so if you if you look at Galatians 3.28 or other passages like that, and you just sort of flatten the distinctions to the point where they don't exist and they don't matter, then actually you're working missiologically against God. And, and you're, you're working against the, the sort of glory of God in the diversity of creation. Now what we have to say is these things don't matter most. What matters most is Christ and that we are in Christ. Um, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 could say, to the Jew I became as a Jew, to the Greek I became as a Greek. You know, he, he's, he's flexing there in his identity because, because now Christ is all, and he's looking to win some. So it doesn't matter most, but it really does matter. And unless we slow down to sort of think through that, how it matters and why it matters, uh, and learn from one another, then we're always going to be talking past each other. We're going to be denying real experiences. Um, and we're going to be guilty of, of failing to love and be empathetic toward one another. And, and denying the idea of the soul as an embodied spirit. It seems like mm-hmm. the, there's an anthropology right. here. There's a, exactly you know, right. that we're the, the theology of embodiment. I remember being at the at uh, Cuts, the Center for Urban Theological Study, and John Perkins was in, and he told a story about uh, how he had a, a white friend who he didn't know real well, but um, there was some racial tension in his area, and, and this brother came up to him and just said, Brother, I love your soul, my friend. And, and uh, Perkins said back to him, Well, my, my soul is contained in a black body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, th- th- just that sense that God has ordained that we have to deal with the reality and the complications and fallenness that comes with embodiment, mm. and that that's part of what's at, at work here. Well said. Well said. You know, um, it might be good, Thabiti, to, to just try to press this for application, because this is this is really important stuff um, that we're talking about, and I, uh, you know, I think about... Uh, Dr. King's comment, uh, 11 a.m., most segregated hour of the week, and, and it's, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, I live in Tallahassee, Florida, which is an ethnically diverse community, and yet, you know, yet our, our church uh, is probably 95% white, and I, I think that there's, there's a lot of pastors out there that have a heart for this, and... Uh, and yet don't know how to, how to make it happen. So how can I, uh, along with other guys that past, pastor churches, encourage and pursue you know, ethnic diversity in the churches that we, we pastor? That's a great question. 
um, one that we're asked often, and I think one that um, admits of some answers, that all of which kind of draw us out of our comfort zone. Uh, the first thing is I think you have to have relationships with people not like you, right? So there's a recent study uh, that was released uh, late August that looked at the sort of friendship networks of, of different ethnic groups and uh, found that 75% of white Americans, this, this you could have knocked me over with a feather when I read this, 75% of white Americans don't have one friend from outside their ethnic group. And then if you were to sort of take the average person and, and um, sort of look at their relationships, say if they had 100 friends, uh, African-Americans, 83 of the 100 of their friends would, would be African-American. Uh, that number rises to, I believe it was 91 of the 100 for white Americans. African-Americans on average would have at least eight white friends. Uh, white Americans on average would have one black friend. And so we're never going to see diversity in our places of worship if if we don't actually have contact with and friendships with uh, people not like us. We have to relinquish our passive approach to friendship. Uh, the other thing we have to do is, is actually, we want to see our churches diverse, is we have to actually share the gospel with people not like us. We have to do the work of evangelism uh, in, in, in cross-cultural, cross-ethnic uh, ways and so if, if you're in a church where um, the community is diversifying and so on, um, think you should be doing evangelism with the residents who are there, um, and uh, that that should bring you into contact with people who both don't know Jesus and don't know you and don't know your church. But um, that would be a wonderful introduction to your church. Um, the other thing to do, just very practically, um, is to is to love people. In, in very simple ways. I, I, I love the story of a pastor friend um, whose church was growing and not yet diverse, and uh, uh, an African-American couple began attending their church, and um, one day after the service, uh, the, the man in that couple was leaving, and he was talking to the pastor at the door. The pastor noticed that he had a cast on his foot and said, what happened? And the guy says, you know, I, I broke my foot or whatever. And this white pastor just sort of kneeled right there, by the man's foot, put placed his hand on the man's foot, and prayed for his foot. And and the African American was was broken by that because he said, "I've I've never had a pastor pray for me in this way." I, and there was something profound about a white pastor um, doing something that was ordinary for him. It's just an act of love for him, uh, but something profound about him kneeling at an African American's foot and and praying for his broken foot. Uh, so those ordinary acts of kindness uh, made a bit more intentional uh, to span uh, sort of cultural or ethnic gaps, um, loving others not like us, uh, that's huge. That's, that's it's huge. The, it's, it's the, the simplicity of, of the gospel, isn't it? That's exactly right. It's the kind of glue that holds the church together across those divides. And um, so get to know some people that don't look like you, share the gospel with them, and, and love them uh, in very practical ways. Practice table fellowship, um, serve a need that you see that they have, let them serve a need that you have. Um, and and so, you know, just open your life to, to each other. So, B.D., one of the things that seems to be very encouraging on the, uh, on the evangelical landscape is the emergence, the surge of, of uh, reformed African-American thinkers and, and pastors. Uh, and I, I attended a, 
a reform seminary back in the 80s that was studying urban issues and uh, you know at times you know J- James Cone was was being assigned and it seemed like a lot of the the thinkers back then were th- their theologizing was decidedly oriented to, to and from justice and the experience of discrimination and inequality and, and you know that's understandable and that stuff needs to be theologized to and from but uh, but today it seems like there's a growing number of African Americans that are theologizing to and from God and God's glory and it, I mean is that a, is that a fair way to portray the development over the last few decades and and if so wh- why do you think that surge is happening well, I do think that's a fair characterization, and and it's not that um, sort of earlier generations didn't have uh, a, a love for God's glory or um, seek God's glory, and so on. Um, but but it it is in one sense you can say the distinctive of Reformed theology is its focus upon the glory of God in all things, uh, and and that distinctive gets raised higher and made brighter. Um, with the, the the recovery of expositional preaching and the centrality of the scriptures, uh, and I do think we've we've been living now in a in a day, uh, a long day of the recovery of exposition, um, and and things like the internet and Christian radio have have made those ministries uh, really quite prominent, and so people who love God's word love expositors. Uh, and and some of the the best expositors that are available to us online on radio, etc., um, are, are guys who love the glory of God and, and live for the glory of God and and, and preach it from text to text. Um, and and so that's created a hunger, and the more often that hunger is satiated, uh, it's also amplified. It's grown, um, and so African Americans, God God has a people. Um, among African Americans, and they they love His Word and love Him and love His glory, and and so we're seeing a, a growth of that. The other thing that's contributing to that uh, in some quarters is just the rise of uh, Christian hip hop, uh, and and guys who have taken that medium and used it for kingdom purposes, and have been able to put such rich truth lyrically uh, into into their albums, into their songs, uh, and that's. That's resonated with a, with, a, with a hip-hop generation, with a generation of people who have grown up where hip-hop wasn't something new that you were questioning whether or not it was going to be around, but it was, it was an entire culture and aesthetic. Um, and so the gospel and the scriptures are being contextualized uh, for a generation that uh, in some ways really had not found a happy home in the church. Um, and so we're seeing growth uh, in that in in that setting, and it's a it's a glorious thing. That's uh, that's very helpful, Thabiti. And uh, you know, we're going to need to wrap up here, but I want to thank you for just taking the time to walk us through some of that. Uh, you know, this has really been an, a, a fascinating interview because I, I feel like what you've done is given us the opportunity to to look at some of these issues through the eyes of somebody that's thought deeply and 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 for a long time about. God's perspective on on the issue of of race. So, thanks so much for joining us. 
Brother, it's a real privilege. Thank you so much for um, the, the work you're doing with, with Call to the Ministry. I'm, I'm glad to see um, your, your thinking and uh, the wealth of wisdom that you have on this topic, um, taking not only book form, but now um, turning into a steady drumbeat of reflection and thought uh, for the church. I pray the Lord prospers it greatly. Oh, thank you, my friend. This has been the Am I Called podcast. I'm your host, Dave Harvey, and, and remember that for, for lots of free information on calling to ministry, including a free assessment test, or information on, on ministry itself, just, just go to amicalled.com and, and poke around for a few minutes, and I, I trust that'll be of service to you in some way. I hope this podcast has, has served you as well, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.